0: Welcome to PwC's weekly accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's episode is a continuation in our special series dedicated to looking at some of the accounting areas impacted by the coronavirus. Our focus today will be going back to the basics on financial asset impairment. Joining me remotely from their homes to help answer your frequently asked questions are PwC partners, Tom Barbieri, Chip Curry, and Matt Sabatini thanks so much for joining me today. Looking forward to this discussion about the impairment models for financial assets or financial instruments. Um, I know in some cases, this guidance has changed recently. And in most cases, a lot of people haven't been applied these models recently. So I think it's a good time for reminder. So to start things off, Chip, can you talk about the model for AFS debt securities?
1: Yeah, sure, Heather. So Just to start, let's assume that a company has already adopted the new impairment guidance that's in ASU 2016-13. So to begin, an available for sale debt security is considered impaired if its fair value is less than its amortized cost basis. So in those situations, the first thing a company should analyze is whether it intends to sell an impaired security or it is more likely than not. It will be required to sell an impaired security before its fair value recovers to equal or exceed its amortized cost basis. If that's your situation, then you should first write off any previously recognized allowance for credit losses with an offsetting entry to the security's amortized cost basis. And once the allowance is fully written off, if the fair value is still less than the amortized cost basis, the company then must write the security down to its fair value through a basis adjustment. So that's what you do if you're in a world where the security is impaired and you have the intent to sell or it's more likely than not you'll be required to sell. Uh, If a company does not have an intent to sell and it's not more likely than not they will be required to sell the security before it recovers its amortized cost basis, the company needs to determine whether any portion of the impairment relates to credit losses. If so, an allowance for credit loss is established with an offsetting entry to net income. So that's something new with the model is that that will be an allowance for credit losses as opposed to a, uh, a charge-off. The way we determine the uh, portion that's credit-related is through an uh, analysis of the present value of the contractual cash flows expected to be collected as compared to the amortized cost basis. And any portion of the impairment that's not credit-loss-related would be reported through other comprehensive income. And uh, a last point to note is that the allowance for credit losses is limited to the amount that the fair value is below the amortized cost
0: basis. Okay, Chip. Before we go on, I have another quick question for you. So, what are some of the things a company should think about if they're trying to figure out if it's more likely than not they'll be required to sell?
1: Good question, Heather. I mean, some of the things that companies would be thinking about would be if it would be more likely than not they'd be required to sell as a result of uh, a, a regulatory matter. So, a regulator. Ask them to sell, or will ask them to sell if the instrument has degraded to the point where um, the regulatory requirements would require them to sell. So, regulatory is one is one issue. Uh, the other issue is liquidity. If, if the companies will thinking will be uh, required to sell these securities because they need the liquidity.
0: Okay, yeah, I think future cash flow projections are very important for a lot of companies right now. And so, you're saying if you're looking at your future cash needs, you may need these funds. You know, then that might trigger that that accounting.
1: Yeah, it's all about looking out as you know, based upon your liquidity needs or when you would be required to sell versus when you think the security will recover in fair value.
0: So then Chip, that's helpful. And Tom, then just kind of thinking this through from a practical perspective, what are some of the considerations companies should have as they think about the allowance?
2: As Chip mentioned, the model requires you to, to run a discounted cash flow. When fair value is less than your amortized cost. You know, that being said, in practice, many companies have developed internal screens or filters, which they use to determine where there might be underlying securities that are of high risk of an impairment due to credit and the need for allowance. So if these screens are hit, then the company would perform a discounted cash flow. Some of the screens that we see are securities credit ratings, either done externally or internally, as well as screens around how significant the fair value is below the amortized cost, either from a materiality or percentage basis. It's important for preparers to think about these as they close their books and recognize that many of these filters might not work in today's environment. Credit rating downgrades by rating agencies are lagging, and they lag actual credit deterioration by issuers or even internal Credit ratings can lag as there's a lack of information available. Therefore, in this stressed credit environment, ratings based filters might require additional scrutiny to ensure they continue to work as intended. Additionally, we've observed that there's a lot of people holding a significant number of investment grade bonds that are rated triple B. So on the lower end of the investment grade spectrum. And obviously, those would expose the holder to a higher likelihood of an impairment. Given the impact of certain industries and geographies, for example, securities issued by obligors in the hospitality or retail sectors, companies might want to establish some supplemental filters given the environment. I think the other consideration you need to think about is once you've identified the securities that you need to run a discounted cash flow for, there'll be challenges given the environment. In many cases, when thinking about fair value of debt securities, isolating what you believe is deterioration from changes due to credit losses, from those related to illiquidity, or changes in rates can be difficult. For structured securities, you know, most have the ability to predict cash flows, including things like prepayments. But when it comes to plain vanilla corporate bonds, most don't have a robust current process or approach for developing cash flow projections. And really, that's based upon the strength of the capital markets and the low interest rate environment we've been in over the past several years. Additionally, although these uh, DCF uh, models could be developed internally. We expect that many preparers might request cash flow projections from third party asset managers. If they are provided from a third party, keep in mind that management can't outsource the responsibility for the reasonableness and therefore will need to understand from the manager how the cash flow projections were developed. So, another good reminder about making sure the process is challenging and controlled. Lastly, I'll just make one observation for those that are still subject to the old rules, the old other than temporary impairment models. There'll be similar challenges. Although the old OTTI rules allow duration for a debt security, how long it's been underwater to be considered, given the current economic events, it might be difficult to assert you can hold it to recovery. So I think those are some, I'll call practical applications as people think through as they're closing their books.
0: Okay, I think that's helpful. And Tom, as you're speaking, as was reminded of something we've talked about on our past podcast, which is that controls and making sure that as you're changing your process here, that you put in place the right controls and safeguards is going to be critically important compared to uh, their normal process.
2: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more.
0: Okay, that's very helpful. So then why don't we go on to our uh, next type of security, and this, this would be equity securities accounted for using the measurement alternative. So before we start talking about the model, Chip, can you help our listeners understand what can potentially be in this type of security. Sure. So with
1: the adoption of ASU 2016-01, equity investments that do not result in consolidation or the application of the equity method are carried at fair value with changes in fair value reported in current earnings, with one exception. If, uh, If an equity instrument does not have a readily determinable fair value, and the company has elected to apply the measurement alternative in ASC 321, then we have a slightly different model. In short, what that model is, is the measurement alternative basically requires an investment to be remeasured to its fair value. And when we say fair value, we mean, you know, fair value in accordance with a GAAP ASC 820. Well, the remeasurement to fair value is required when there's an impairment or when there's observable price changes in orderly transactions for either The same instrument you hold or a similar investment from the same issuer. So when you see one of these remeasurement events, whether it's an observable transaction or an impairment, then the instrument is remeasured to fair value through earnings. So a couple of things to be thinking about. The first, in the current environment, there may be additional observable transactions in the marketplace as a result of companies just sort of reallocating or adjusting their portfolios. When you think about impairment under the measurement alternative, it's a qualitative approach, and the standard lays out some indicators and some factors to consider in determining whether or not a security is impaired. And again, impaired we mean is the fair value below the amortized cost basis. And and obviously, given the nature of the securities and the instruments we're talking about, that will require a lot of judgment.
0: So then, Chip, it sounds like there may be some companies where potentially they have not been making adjustments to these instruments because they haven't seen transactions and they haven't had a reason to think there's an impairment. But in the current environment, that's something where there's going to be some pressure and they're really going to need to look at this. Totally agree, Heather. And so then, uh, Tom, once again, can you weigh in with some things that companies should think about if they are holding these types of securities and now need to address this accounting at March 31?
2: Sure, Heather. In assessing these equity investments for impairment, the, the measurement alternative does not include a significant stress hold or the ability to avoid an impairment if the reporting entity believes a decline in fair value is temporary. Okay, So it also does not recognize the concept of other than temporary as it relates to an impairment assessment. So effectively, it's a, a one step impairment model under which companies should determine the fair value of the equity investment if it has reasons to believe that the investment's fair value is below the carrying value. And there's some factors to consider in making this evaluation, but given today's marketplace, I think many are going to end up being subject to the impairment analysis. And if you think about it, when companies actually elected the measurement alternative, it was often for securities where it was difficult to determine the fair value. Mm -hmm. And now as a result of the current market events, it's likely that many of those securities are going to require a determination of fair value, unless you have a basis to conclude that, either the industry itself that the underlying investment is in wasn't hit hard by the current crisis or it was purchased at a, a time whereby you would expect that the fair value still exceeds your carrying value. But the reality is the current market events is going to make it harder to value securities that began their day as being hard to value, right? right. So keep in mind, there's going to be a lack of current information to assist in determining fair value, and people are going to need to have a good process with sound documentation to help support their fair value determinations. So a lot to think about.
0: Let's say that you have one of these securities, you do conclude there's an impairment and you write it down this quarter. And then as we're all hoping, the economy rebounds. And at some point in the future, you have recovery. Then is this a one-way impairment model or you would write it back to fair value when you saw another observable transaction?
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a one-way impairment model. And so you would have to wait until you saw another observable orderly transaction to remarket to a current fair value. And so That's something to keep in mind as you change the, I'll call it the carrying value of your asset.
0: Right. So then what you're saying is, even if you think it's rebounded, unless you can observe that in the market, you're not going to be able to make an adjustment. That's correct. But on making your impairment, you need to use the information you have and your understanding of the broader markets to say, okay, either because of the industry or your knowledge of the business or other market factors that you believe that the security is impaired. Agreed. So then... Tom, probably even more so than on the AFS debt securities or equally so, the controls and processes in this area will also be critically important this quarter.
2: Absolutely. And again, it's going to be difficult because you're probably going to be fair valuing securities using internal models or using third-party information that you haven't done previously. So it's, it's really important to get that right and make sure that you document that as well.
0: So then why don't we turn to our third type of financial instrument, and this is going to be talking about equity method investments. And Matt, I'll turn to you uh, to just get some background on the impairment model if you have an investment that you're accounting for using the equity method.
3: Unlike what Tom just described for equity securities under ASC 321, for equity method investments, an impairment charge is recognized in earnings when the decline in value below the carrying amount is determined to be other than temporary. So this is an assessment that companies are going to have to think about continuously. Which, frankly, is easier for equity securities that have readily determinable fair values. Not as easy for uh, equity securities in private companies, which I would say most equity method investments are. Um, but certainly for these private companies, any, anytime there's been an event or a change in circumstances that may significantly impact the fair value of the investment, that would be a a time to to reassess um, whether or not you've had an impairment of this of this investment. Some examples, you know, might be a series of operating losses from the investee. The investee itself has recorded an impairment in its financial statements. If other investors have ceased funding the investment, you'll also look at macroeconomic conditions and the credit ratings, um, any defaults of the investee, and whether or not the investee has a qualified audit opinion. Uh, Another thing to keep in mind, right, the unit of account for assessing whether or not there's been an other than temporary impairment of an equity method investment is the carrying value of the investment as a whole. So what I mean by that is it's not appropriate for an investor to separately test the goodwill or other assets of the investee for impairment. They're just comparing the overall carrying value of their investment. To the fair value of their investment when thinking about whether or not there's impairment
0: yeah and matt before we go on i think a key point here is unlike what we were talking about with equity securities using the measurement alternative and then the afs debt securities you still do have this other than temporary or you have an other than temporary concept when you're talking about equity method investments
3: That's right. It can be a little bit tricky because I know that other than temporary, the colloquial definition of that might be permanent. That's not what we mean under gap, right? You don't have to have a permanent decline in value in order to recognize an impairment under this model. So what do we mean by other than temporary? Again, it's going to be judgmental and and a little bit subjective, but there are some factors to think about. And I know Tom mentioned earlier, the duration, so the length of time uh, and the extent or severity to which the market value of the security is below its carrying value is going to be Um, helpful in thinking about whether or not that difference is other than temporary. It goes without saying that the longer that the the security is underwater or the the amount by which it is underwater, um, the harder it is to overcome a presumption that it's an other uh, other than temporary decline in value. You're also going to look at the financial condition of the underlying investee and its near-term prospects for cash flows and a return to the investor. Um, And I'd say, you know, the intent and the ability of the investor to hang on to its investment um, for a period of time that allows it to recover is also going to be important. So again, weighing the positive and negative evidence is going to require a lot of judgment for companies. Uh, you're going to have to think about the reason that was driving the impairment. You're going to think about um, whether or not the investment is a strategic investment or it's more more financial in nature. What I will say is that as the level of negative evidence grows, the more positive evidence and the more supportable, objective, and verifiable that positive evidence needs to be to to overcome a presumption that it's other than temporary.
0: So, Matt, before you go on, I just have a question for you, because you started off describing how you're assessing whether a decline is other than temporary by saying two of the factors you consider are the severity, but the duration. And so I think for a lot of companies, if you're looking at March 31. Potentially, the duration of the decline has only been a few weeks and obviously potentially more to come. So how should companies think about that as they're looking at their March 31 financial statements?
3: Yeah, it's a it's a good question, Heather, and I, I think it's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of subjectivity and, and judgment involved in trying to decide as of March 31st whether any decline in value is other than temporary. So I I think there'll be situations where companies have investments in equity method securities for public companies where there's readily determinable fair value and you're going to be able to observe the severity of the decline and the fair value of those securities. Granted, you might see a short duration, but a severe um, decline in value. And again, there's going to be a lot of judgment in deciding whether or not something like th- that is other than temporary. And I think the evidence that you're going to have to think through is um, what's the period of, of time that I'm going to hold the investment and whether or not I think it could be recover in that period of time. What's driving the underlying decline in the fair value of that security. So things like that will come into play on the positive evidence side. But you know, Again, depending on the severity, it may be hard to overcome. I think that most companies have equity method investments in companies that are not publicly traded, and in that case, you know, you're reliant on valuation models to help dictate the severity of the decline. Um, there's going to be a lot more judgment involved.
0: Yeah, and I think Matt, one thing that in listening to you is thinking about, and it applies equally to what Tom and Chip were talking about, is disclosure is going to be critical. So whether you conclude that the decline is temporary, and so you're not taking an impairment, disclosing information about that. Or obviously, if you do take an impairment, disclosing the factors that went into that is going to be important.
3: Yeah, that's right. Anytime that you're making significant judgments around the carrying value of a security on your balance sheet, it's important to Give full disclosure about uh, what's driving those judgments and what was the result of those judgments, whether or not you decided to take the impairment or you decided to merely disclose kind of the judgments around why you've, you've viewed that as not other than temporary.
0: Okay. And then Matt, maybe to wrap things up, are there any other sort of sleeper issues or complexities that companies should be thinking about as they look at their March 31 close?
3: There's a couple of things I'll mention. Um, the first is on basis differences. And I know we talked about this in a previous podcast on equity method investments. When an investor uh, has a basis difference uh, in, in its equity method investment, uh, it can be pretty complicated if you're going to recognize an impairment loss for an other than temporary decline in value, um, because that might uh, affect existing basis differences or it could create new ones. So the, the guidance doesn't really address the most appropriate method to adjust your basis differences when you take an impairment. There could be more than one acceptable approach. Um, so it's an accounting policy that should be applied consistently. What I'll say, though, is it's certainly going to be complicated, and companies should be very careful that they're not double counting an impairment charge if the investee has recorded one in their financial statements, and you, as the investor, have also recorded an other than temporary
0: impairment. So then, Matt, it's you know, you know you mentioned considering whether or not the equity investee has taken an impairment in its financial statements. But how does this all work? Because I know often companies are accounting for their equity method investees on a lag.
3: Yeah, that's a good question. If you're thinking about the other than temporary impairment model from an investor perspective, you're generally looking at it on your balance sheet date. So your balance sheet data as the investor may be three months ahead of the financial information you're getting from your equity method investee. So you might be looking at in a situation where you've concluded you have an other than temporary impairment and you've recognized a charge through your P&L related to that investment, yet the investee entity hasn't recorded a charge in their financial statements. So you're tracking another difference there. Uh, and then fast forward three months, the equity method investee may record an impairment charge in their financial statements. And that's another situation where you have to be careful of double counting
0: right but then matt i guess the other point would be even if you are accounting for the company on a lag if there is an impairment that's sort of in the lag period that does not give you a reason to wait to take the impairment charge an impairment that you conclude is other than temporary
3: yeah, generally, that's that's the case. I mean, when we're thinking about events that happen during the lag period, we, we do require the guidance requires recognition of those events, either through your financial statements or through disclosure. But for impairment, because you're doing the OTTI impairment assessment as of your balance sheet data as the investor, you're generally going to be a little bit ahead of where the investee is.
0: Okay, that's helpful. Tom, Chip, Matt, really appreciate the insight and I uh, think will be very helpful for our listeners. So thank you. As a reminder, we're currently releasing episodes almost daily as we work to provide coverage on the latest issues affecting your financial reporting in the current environment. This week, we're focusing on impairment topics, so please tune in tomorrow to hear PwC partner Andreas Oll in a double header as we go back to the basics on impairment models for long-lived assets and goodwill, followed by a special COVID-19 discussion. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'd love to hear from you, so please write to me at heather.horn at pwc.com, or to stay up to date on the latest content, Let's Connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, All Rights Reserved.